This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. But uh, the uh, big story that we're talking about on CHML News this morning, Hamilton Police have uh, told us that they will have an update for us on the Angelo Musitano murder investigation at 11 o'clock this morning. Uh, we've attempted to reach uh, Hamilton Police Service and get some information about this. And, of course, their, their lips are sealed, but uh, we're hoping for some information about this and news information. Uh, this, of course, uh, since Angelo Musitano was gunned down in the driveway, was watered down home uh, months ago now. And uh, for the longest time, it seemed as if there were no strong leads in this investigation. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see just what Hamilton police have come up with. Joining us to talk about this is uh, James Dubrow. James, of course, is an award-winning author, a longtime crime writer and researcher uh, of a number of uh, great books and, of course, uh, very heavily involved in the CBC uh, investigative report series some years ago about organized crime here in Ontario. And always a welcome guest on the Bill Keller Show on CHML. James, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Maybe let's set some context here, if we could. And, and, and you and I have talked about this in the past, about the fascination that we all seem to have with organized crime, uh, not just here in the Hamilton area, but otherwise. And uh, and uh, almost a romance. I don't know if it's because of The Godfather and the Mario Puzo novel or, or whatever it might be. Yeah, that, and Goodfellas and all the other great yeah, Sopranos. I, yeah, I mean, you know, we love Joe Pesci. We love all to hear about right. this stuff. Uh, but as, as as you and others have written about over the time, maybe there's a certain romantic element to this, and, uh, and but there's a dark side to organized crime that we need to be uh, cognizant of when we have these discussions. The dark side is the very essence of it. Frequently, I mean, they, it's a dog eat dog world, and if you if you make a mistake or you're not uh, doing things right, you're killed. I mean, that's that's the way life is in, in the mob. Well, and we saw that with, uh, you know, the, the, we all loved uh, James Gandolfini. We loved those sorts of shows. But uh, that, I think, was a stark reminder of what this was really like, that this is a gritty life. It's uh, it's not a glamorous life like it was portrayed in some movies, uh, you know, with uh, with hitmen that travel around and make big bucks doing these sorts of things. Oftentimes, this is uh, this is uh, dealing with, uh, well, a, a pretty dark element of our co- community and our society. Yes, and, and of course, the, sad, the sadder part, if you want to call it sad, is that, in this case, Angela Musitano. I mean, he grew up in that family. His father was a was a don in Hamilton and quite a well-established don. He grew up in in organized crime, and in fact, he involved in his one of his first murders we know about when he was a teenager. You know, uh, and uh, he went to jail for his role in the Papalia Barrel the Barrelero murder. So, in a way, he was sort of you know indoctrinated into it, much like the child soldiers in. Uh, in uh, Afghanistan, you know, Omar Khadr or whatever, you know, I mean, what what element of choice went in there is unclear. You know, there's an interesting sidebar to this, uh, and, and we always need to be cognizant of this here in Hamilton, is that as we talk about the Musitano family, uh, I, I have to tell you, in the interest of full disclosure, I know uh, many of the people in that family. Uh, you know, we, we don't socialize, but I mean, I know them. I know right. to say hi to them, as, as do many other people in this community. Sure. I mean, they're interwoven into the fabric of this community. And, and I know I don't think I ever met Angelo. I probably did at one time or another, but I, I've met his brother, uh, cousins, uh, uncles, right. and things of this nature. They're nice. Well, I've, I've met them. It's a small town, Hamilton, in many ways, isn't it? <laughs> and, and you know, James, when you talk to the folks that know them, or the, that are their neighbors, or their frequent the businesses that they ran to say, hey, these are great people. They're nice folks. Well, I don't know about that. Uh, Angelo did try to change his life, like his uncle Tony. Uh, allegedly, he, he tried to reform himself in the last six months or years of his life. In fact, he was writing some memoir for his church group about his life in crime. But I don't know. And, and can you redeem yourself after you've done a lot of awful things, even as a teenager? It's, it's very hard you know, to say whether you can redeem yourself because you still have the baggage of what you've done. Well, let me ask you about that, okay? Uh, in in maybe in, in a, a, a hypothetical situation, somebody commits a crime, even at, at a young age like Angelo did, right. uh, and they do their time. Uh, you know, they, they're sentenced, they do their time. We as a society like to hold on to the tenet that, well, okay, they've made mistakes, but, you know, society has, has dealt out their punishment. Uh, it's time to turn the page and give them an opportunity, a second chance. Right. Uh, does that mindset hold true with the organized crime? It can. I mean, it's very rare that that a professional organized criminal is going to change, bec- uh, be rehabilitated because of jail, because they're already familiar with all the, uh, you know, it's part of the turf going to jail. But that it has happened, and this is what is alleged to some degree in this case, not so much the jail, but that he did want to turn his life around. But can you? I mean, that's the thing. If you've been a biker and a killer or a mafia guy and a killer and involved in a 
you know, in very nasty crimes, there's obviously the element of vengeance that's going to follow you in any new life, uh, even if you were in that new life. So, and uh, you still have to live by what you did. And therein lies the situation. I mean, we're speculating at this stage until we actually hear what Hamilton police have to say later on this morning, James. But yeah, that's interesting though, because you know, it was eight, nine months ago, eight, eight months ago that, that that the killing right in front of his house uh, in his truck. Uh, our car in the front of the uh, house uh, in broad daylight. He was killed. They, they, the, the vehicle was, was, um, was, was, got, was discovered, and they have even an image of the uh, of the killer. This is a hitman, obviously, and yet eight months later they haven't charged him. Maybe they're very close to charging someone, or maybe they are going to charge someone today. And what about a statute of limitations? Uh, no, there's none. <laughs> not, not, in, not in organized crime? Not in murder. Oh, statute of limitations in organized crime. Well, probably less so than in the real world. Now, there's no statute of limitations on murder, and there's no statute of limitations on revenge. You know, revenge is a, a dish best served cold, they say. And that certainly holds true in, in the mob and organized crime. And, and, and I'm not trying to suggest the, the Godfather is, is the you know the, the the standard that we set here, but obviously I think everybody's seen one of those movies at one time. I'm yes. I'm a big fan of them. I love, love the movies. Uh, but as, as you recall, in, in Godfather Two, the uh, the people that, that you know, killed Michael Corleone's uh, wife over in Sicily, it was what 20, 25 years That's later right. that, that he finally exacted that, his revenge. That happens. That happened here in Toronto with uh, with one of the Camisos, uh, Rima Camiso. He went back. Years later, and 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 revenge something that happened to his father, and had a, had a, someone killed. Yeah, that's that's very typical of a certain. And we've seen that with the Montreal mob, oftentimes too, with the Rizzuto family. Yes, yes, you can. Uh, we're not always certain that that is the twenty or thirty years later is revenge for that act, but it, often that happens. Uh, people don't forget, and uh, you know, it's never too late to to revenge yourself on someone. It's a theme of a lot of thrillers. <laughs> Uh, quite apart from the mob, so yeah. But with with the the, the murder of Angela Musitano in his driveway of his home, yeah. and and we know the story, of course. Subsequently, that there were some incidents at uh, at his brother's house, Pat Musitano's house, over right. in the East End on St. Clair Avenue. What's what's going on right now, James? What's what's happening within the the organized crime community when when stuff like this is, is well, happening? Pat Musitano is much more obvious target. Angela was basically a. Uh, a soldier, uh, not a, not the leader of the family. Pat has been the leader of the family ever since Dominic Musitano died, his, his father, and uh, a kind of clueless leader. But uh, uh, he was an, uh, convicted of arson and murder and various other things. But nonetheless, the leader. I've met him, and he told me I should be sleeping with the fish. I actually told my colleague that. Any rate, he's certainly straightforward, but there are a lot of people that don't like Pat Musitano. He arranged uh, the killings of two mob bosses in in the 90s. He wanted to have others killed. Angela followed along with him, so that's why he's part of the package. But I know I've talked to a lot of people in the underworld and, and near the underworld in Hamilton. As you say, everyone knows somebody in the underworld in Hamilton. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people say, why is Pat Musitano still alive? You know, before Angela was killed, his his, uh, his car was blown up. And after Angela was killed just a few months ago, his house was attacked firebombed, I believe, or shot up. Do you remember that? Not yeah, yeah, bullets through the the window, I believe, yeah. And the, the word on the street is that, you know, he wasn't going to make it through, I think it was actually in July or August, anyway, the, that he wasn't going to make it through the year, and here it is, 2018, and he's still around. Now, he refused police protection, even though he's, he knows he's a marked man. Why is he a marked man? <laughs> That's a tricky question. He It could be revenge for many... Uh, murders and, and acts he did in his life. Uh, it could be to just get rid of him as the last sort of mob boss, mafia boss, or obvious mafia boss. There are other mafia bosses, but they're quiet in Hamilton and in Toronto, very quiet. They're more Indrangheta types, you know, that run the little cells and run their drugs and don't have a huge presence in the street. Remember Pat Mustano and his father, Dominic, and Angela had a huge street presence. That's where I met him, in the street. I was filming something for City TV, and he came to us on the street with two of his goons. Uh, so they're very, they were very conspicuous, right? I mean, they did arsons. They did extortions. Um, they were into obvious crimes. The real Andrangheta Mafia people do quietly do their work. You know, they, they bring in drugs and make millions in drugs, uh, whether it's fentanyl or... or uh, heroin or whatever, they, they, they make their money and that's it. They don't want to be have a street presence. They don't want to be known. 
necessarily on the street. They, in fact, may have covered jobs, and many of them do, in legitimate businesses, and many of them are respected people. I'll let you think about that for a while <laughs> in the community. You use, use that term loosely, I guess. Who's, yeah. who's calling the shots now, James? I mean, you know, we used to hear about the families and about the Dons, and, and there's so many, the, the Magadinos right. in Buffalo, and, and, and you know, yeah. the New York influence here in Hamilton, and the Montreal influence, et cetera. Is it as strong as it used to be, and, and, and who's at the, at the top of that power structure? Well, that's a good question, very good question. Of course, you know, it's not the mafia. There are many mafias. There are many uh, Andrangheta uh, cells. There are many uh, even Sicilian mafia cells. There are many organized crime groups. There's biker groups, Hells Angels, blah, blah, blah. You know, many, many groups. So I would say for a long time there's no one in charge. Pat Musitano was never in charge. He thought he was. That's why he was killing people. And But he ended up in jail, and you know, he ends up with a contract on him. That'll probably be executed at some point. Nobody's in charge. And, the, and even Johnny Papalia, when he was at the height, you know, in the 80s, 70s and 80s, he wasn't really in charge. There were four families, even in the Hamilton area. He, he was certainly never in charge of Toronto. Magadino was a factor, for sure. The Magadino family still is a factor, but not in charge. It's not that, uh, it's not that one kind of thing, you know. It's, it's, it's not that homogeneous. It's, it's, it's um, people work together. Are, are they work at odds, but they're not all one group. There isn't one Don, and there's never been one Don in charge of Hamilton, not in our lifetimes, except for Rocco Perry, maybe way back. And even then, he wasn't totally in charge, but he, in the twenties, he was certainly the predominant figure. But then he was killed or taken out. We never know, do we? Uh, he went for a walk one day to get rid of a headache and was never seen again. Never seen again, but he was taken out for sure, or he, or he left. But whatever happened, he was he he was disappeared. Um, but the point is that Rocco Perry was never totally in charge. He, there were ongoing bombings against his vehicles and houses and things in, in Hamilton in 38. And, and a great deal of controversy about how his wife died and who might have been involved in that. Oh, well, that, that was a murder. Yeah, his wife was definitely murdered, and, and that was a big one. That's still unsolved. 1930, she was shot to death in, in front of the... In, in, the, in the garage, uh, yeah. garage of, her, of their beautiful home in, in Hamilton. But, you know, she was definitely murdered, and, and in one of my books I talk about the leading theory the RCMP had of a she had bought heroin drugs from a uh, family in, in New York. Actually, the guy who fixed the World Series, uh, whose name is uh, Rothstein. Arnold Rothstein. Yeah, and then Rothstein was killed, and they were trying to collect the money, and she sort of laughed at them. That the, 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 the police had recruited her, uh, one of her servants, and said that they, these guys came up from Rochester, and she just laughed at them. What, what money, you know? And, and so the contract was done. And presumably Rocco agreed to it, even though he loved her. And that's the way of the mob. You know, you get rid of a problem. Of course, they didn't get the money that way either, so it's not really a very effective way of getting money back. When you're doing an investigation like this, James, into a, a, the, the murder of Angelo Musitano in his driveway, and uh, how forthcoming are, are people with information? I mean, you mentioned it's been almost, what, nine months now. Uh, and and now they're holding a media conference, and hopefully there's going to be an update on this. But uh, uh, are, is is the to use the phrase omerta still uh, the, the the way of of doing things there? Nobody talks about anything. Well, I wouldn't say that uh, a murder has been long gone for a long time as a absolute. I mean, remember uh, the Musitanos ordered the killing of Pepeo and Barilero and Kenny Murdoch, the hitman. Uh, ratted them out eventually. It's a long, complicated series of events how it got there, but basically he ratted them out and went to jail, and he's now out. Uh, he served only seven years because he made a deal. Uh, there hasn't been stricter murder, but the problem here is you, you've, uh, we're not sure there are too many witnesses. There are almost no witnesses, and there'll be word on the street, so the cops may be talking about what they heard from the underworld, which I'm sure is a lot. I'm sure there are a lot of theories, but they have to go in hard fact. I would think the most important thing for the police right now is forensic evidence, you know, things they got from the vehicle, uh, from the scene. And then after that, any information they got from people who have heard information from the, from the uh, either the people who ordered the hit or the hitman himself. That's, they could piece together sometimes, which is what they did in the, the Paleo and Barileros, where they pieced it together, got to Kenny Murdoch, and then they ultimately charged Patton, Angela Musitano, for the murders of Barilero, not Papalia, but that's a long, complicated story. But they went to jail for it for quite a few years, 10 years. I, I'm just about out of time here. I, every time I get you on here, I always have to ask, anything in the works here? Any projects on the go? Oh, I'm working on several things. I don't particularly want to talk about it now, but uh, they're not all organized crime, but uh, they're connected. 
Well, let's talk about that when you're ready to. It's always fascinating, and it's always a great read anytime you come up with anything. James, thank you, thank you again so much for the insight into this. I appreciate the time. The yeah, let's hope the police made progress in this. <laughs> well, we'll find out in a couple of hours, I guess. Thanks again, James. Right. Bye. James Dubrow, of course, uh, award-winning uh, uh, author about a number of different books about organized crime here in southern Ontario. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, as uh, we all know, Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, was in Hamilton yesterday for Town Hall. He's doing a series of those. He's in London today, at London, Ontario, for another one of those. And then, of course, they're having a caucus retreat there. But uh, yesterday, uh, first of all, he did an interview with us that we aired uh, just about 24 hours ago here on this program. Sadly, we only had about five or six minutes to talk to the Prime Minister. That's what his, uh, his handlers told us. So a lot of stuff that we didn't uh, have an opportunity to touch on. But uh, later that day, just afternoon, he uh, was at McMaster University at the uh, David Braley Athletic Center in the Burge Gym uh, to uh, look like a packed crowd, and uh, it, was a, it was a town hall. And uh, Sarah Kane, CHML reporter, was there, along with CHML's Ken Mann, uh, to uh, get a feel for what was going on and obviously do some evaluations. Thanks for coming in today, by the Ooh, way. I know it's a busy me. day for you. you got stuff you got to run to and cover in a few <laughs> minutes here. But I want to spend a few minutes talking with you about, about your perception uh, of what you saw. And before we talk about the Prime Minister's performance, maybe set the scene for us, because you were outside for a while, too, and I know there were protesters. Uh, whenever you get the Prime Minister, whether it's mm-hmm. Justin Trudeau, Stephen Harper, Jean Chrétien, doesn't matter, uh, you're going to get some people that love him and said, hey, this is a great chance to meet the, the person I really admire, and others that just can't stand the guy, and they're just waiting sure. to get up there and vet that. And I'm sure you saw both yesterday. Oh, absolutely. So uh, I was outside while our other reporter, Ken, was inside getting ready for the town hall, as you can imagine, much security and things to go through there. But on the outside, you have one side of the road on campus, and it's just a huge lineup that winds around blocks and blocks and blocks of people that are lined up, very excited. Some with questions kind of in hand, ready to to ask the prime minister. Just across from them, about a dozen protesters. So you've got signs up about everything from climate change to you know the the pipelines that we have and and what's going on stop with Enbridge. Yes, uh, Hamilton Coalition to stop the war. They were there very adamant about a number of foreign policy issues that they wanted to highlight and, and suggesting some questions even to the people as they kind of made their way into <laughs> the center, uh, hoping that those would kind of come up. And they did mention that they, which is no surprise now, seeing what did happen, there were people from those organizations actually inside as well. Well, sure. And, and you know, I don't want to create the impression for those that weren't there that, uh, that you know, this was a, a love-in and that everybody was lining up there to see him. I know that uh, John Wells in the spec today, uh, his piece, John's a great writer, uh, suggested that, well, it was almost t- took on the theme of a, of a campaign rally. Uh, but there were a lot of people that, that were not Justin Trudeau fans that were also in that building as well. Absolutely. Uh, there certainly was that feeling that perhaps this is prep for the 2019 federal election. Oh, sure and anything is. like this could be, of course. I mean, it's information gathering, it's campaigning, it's showing face. But it's also, uh, I think a lot of people in line felt that it was a really great indicator of trying to get that democratic, you know, connection with the people and having that FaceTime. Many people using the word accessibility, uh, you know, even if they weren't a fan of Justin Trudeau or his policies uh, up until now, they were happy to have access to him to start to address some of those issues. Here's the thing, and whether you like Justin Trudeau or not, and I've talked to a lot of folks in, so- in social media that are in both camps, and it, it almost seems like it's a polarizing thing. But but the reality here, and you just touched on the word accessibility, and and that's something that that I, I I gotta have any give some chops to to any politician that does this sort of thing because we have evolved over the last number of years. Our political leaders, anyway, seem to have evolved, or maybe maybe they've gone backwards. I guess is maybe the better que- the point of, of describing this, of of protecting themselves, setting up barriers from the media. Uh, this is not like Abe Lincoln where we do the stump speech and just stand there and talk to folks and have to deal with it. Uh, everything is talking points. Everything is all set up. They have their own little podium. Uh, they do their thing. Uh, you know, the former prime minister, yep. the guy that was in charge before Trudeau, uh, only allowed certain questions from certain reporters. I think he did one town hall, mm-hmm. if I recall, and it was late in uh, in his ninth or tenth year in office. And we found out later on the only people that were allowed in were conservatives. Uh, so it was a love-in in situations like mm-hmm. this. When you open up a gym like this and just say everybody can come in, you're going to get a little bit of everything. And I think I think the questions reflected that. But 
give me give me your read on what you saw there. I mean, were there, there wasn't everybody, oh, I want to see this guy. I mean, because I, I talked to some people that were in line on social media that were just plain pissed off about everything, and they said, I want to talk to this guy about this. Absolutely, but also happy to have the opportunity, as you were mentioning, obviously, previous uh, prime ministers and their administrations have had, you know, maybe one town hall, and it was a very controlled setting. So I think people were happy that, and as we had seen in Nova Scotia, that perhaps these questions weren't all vetted. They were just kind of thrown at him, and he was getting points very largely for just being able to really go with the roll with the punches. Well, part of that is because of expectations, I guess. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I mean, let's face it. When he does a town hall meeting, and, and I saw this when I did my interview with him yesterday, uh, he knows he's going to get asked about the agri-con vacation. Sure. Of course he does. You know, because it's big news that made a, a lot of fury. He was grilled on it in the House of Commons before they went on their Christmas break. So he's got to know that that's going to come up. And the Cotter payment, mm-hmm. even though it may not be front of center for us right now in the media, people still talk about this and they're concerned about this. And, and if they have contrary political views, it's something that they're going to grasp onto. Uh, you know, I, I know that when he announced this thing, Sarah, you remember the media yeah. release that his, his office put out, well, he wants to talk about the economy. And I, I don't know that there was any question about the economy. I'm sure there were over the course of the hour and a half that he was there. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's not, it's not a, a, a coffee shop or a talk show issue for most people. They're, they're more concerned with some of these hot button issues about ethics in this nature. So he's going to know that. And of course, he's going to be prepared for that. Any good politician would do that. Yeah. And he's really allowing those people that are coming in to frame the discussion, even though he may have some talking points and things he want to communicate that that are on his agenda or maybe he's looking forward to the next federal election he still has all these people that he doesn't have control of these questions. And as I was kind of going through the line, I mean, marijuana was a big one. People wanted to know what that's what the rollout is really going to look like. Still a lot of questions up in the air. Obviously, the province has a role in that as well. People talking about what's going on in the U.S. and our relationship there. So those were the sorts of things that people did want to address, and, and whether or not that was what he had in mind <laughs> is something else altogether. I, I thought, you know, when he started this, and I read the transcript of this, the Sackville Town Hall, and of course the, the stuff that you and Ken were reporting on yesterday, uh, I thought the Trump-U.S. relationship thing would have come up a lot more, and it didn't. Uh, there were one or two questions, I guess, but that was about it. Mm-hmm, yeah, I, I didn't see much either, uh, although the people, some some of the people that I did speak to in line, whether they got chosen or not for a question is another thing, so it's hard to have a read on how important that is to people, but it did come up. There was one uh, student who said he wanted to travel to the States but had some questions about you know personal tax exemptions, things going on corporately, and that was something he wanted to ask about. What was the mood of the, of the people that were getting ready to go in? there is because as, as you walked up and down the line obviously there were the protesters who have uh, some ideological concern and mm-hmm. you mentioned there were a number of different uh, topics whether it was Enbridge or the war or whatever the case might be but but those that were actually going to wait and, and stand there uh, which can be a rather tedious process I think the last time I stood in line to get into the birds gym was to go see the Bee Gees in the mid-1970s so it's been a while but but to actually say yeah we're going to stand out here and we're going to wait because we have to see this where I want to make sure that I get near a microphone or something like this there's, so so there's anticipation but were they were they happy were they uh, there was was there their joy was there anger what was, what was the mood yeah I think it speaks volumes that they were waiting patiently and an incredibly long lineup for possibly hours some people starting as early as 9:30 10 a.m. when it didn't start until well after one o'clock so I mean that alone is you know very beat and and positive about having that opportunity. Again, not everyone a fan, but I think the mood was really one of being excited to observe the process. A lot of people didn't even have questions when I said, is there something that you have in mind? It was just having that opportunity to observe him go through this and answer some of those questions. There was a question yesterday, and it was one of the ones that made uh, the, the the news uh, on global. Uh, they covered it, and I, I guess right across the national media. And I know that you guys, you and Ken Mann, mm-hmm. uh, talked about this. Uh, one of the uh, the folks that asked a question was about security at that meeting, uh, and and he questioned the what he thought was lack of security. I know the prime minister addressed that. Uh, what did you see uh, as as you were watching, waiting for people to come in, etc.? Because the, the guy who was asking the question talked about the fact that, well, there were no metal detectors. We weren't all padded down. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you get the sense that there was security there? I got a kind of a mixed review from those people who, reporters and people with media outlets that went in. Some said it, it was really not hard to get in and very little, you know, kind of vetting as you go through. Um, others had a bit of a harder time. Um, so it's hard to say I didn't have to go through that process. 
However, when I did show up, there was quite a large police presence right outside of the building, at least 10 or more officers. And then, of course, there's the McMaster security presence as well. There were those doing kind of traffic control that was near the crowd, watching the protesters as well and seeing how that kind of all (laughs) rolled out. So, I mean, there was definitely a visible presence, I would say. How much that, you know, kind of rolled out inside is is hard for me to say. The the reason I'm asking is because whenever there's a VIP, especially a political VIP and a a leader, whether it's a premier or or a a prime minister, and we've seen that, Sarah, when, Mm -hmm. when they come into the studio here and you know, we've had, uh, well, Stephen Harper was here a number of times on Roy's show, of course, back when he was uh, prime minister. Uh, we've had premiers, we've had other uh, dignitaries that have come in here, too. Uh, a lot of the security is there, but you don't see it, because uh, we've mm-hmm. noticed that. I mean, you know, there may not have been people in uniforms, there may not have been metal detectors. Right. Uh, but if you, if you really look for it, you see a lot of people talking into their wrist. Uh, you know, with little <laughs> earpieces in, and, and you know, and they may not look like they're security fi- folks, but I mean, that's that's their job basically is to meld in. Because my understanding is that there were security in the crowd, there was security outside, not dressed like security, but but obviously keeping an eye on things. And you know, things are being managed too. I mean, we got emails yesterday from a few of the groups that were protesting, saying that they'd been moved from location to location, that they weren't allowed to distribute flyers at one point, and then that kind of changed, and they made different re, you know, they kind of rearranged what was what they could do what they were allowed to do or permitted in certain spaces so you know that these things are happening and there's a lot of moving parts even though you may not be seeing it well one of the examples that I used was uh, when we did our Remembrance Day broadcast of course we've been doing that for many many years and you remember a couple of years ago we had to move it from uh, Gore Park to City Hall because they were right. renovation the renovations at Gore Park and it happened to be just a couple of days after the murder of, of Nathan Cirillo at the Cenotaph mm-hmm. in Ottawa so there was a great security concern because uh, we were this great big outdoor space, and there are thousands of people that show up for this thing every day. And 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 I talked to some of the folks at Hamilton Police Services uh, that day and afterwards, and I said, "What are you guys doing for security?" He says, "We're everywhere." And well, yeah. I was there. I was broadcasting for three hours that day, and and you could see a few officers. And I said, "That's it." And he says, "Oh no, no, no." He says, "We're everywhere. Mm-hmm. You just you can't see us." And I got to assume when the prime minister is making an appearance like that, it's the same situation. They're there. They're just not obvious, and and which is really what their job is in situations like that. Yeah, and I've noticed that in previous meetings that he's had here in Hamilton when he went to City Hall, uh, the people that were around him, security personnel, were really trying to even control where the media went, trying to put us in a room. We were, you know, thoroughly vetted up and down, our bags open, stuff of that nature. So it, it does happen. I've seen it happen. And that's it, it depends on you know what you're doing to participate also so i mean media might be different than those just coming in to sit down and, and ask a question now as as a media representative i know one of the other things when talking to some of our media colleagues about this uh, there was a, a, a level of uh, of concern about the fact that he didn't do a media scrum hmm. uh, which usually is what leaders do whenever they come to a town or a city as you mentioned you know when at that time that uh, the, the prime minister was here and he met with mayor eisenberger there was a media scrum. They said, okay, he'll let you guys in now for a few seconds. And they heard all the media in there, and you see all the microphones. That didn't happen. Now, when I asked the prime minister's office about that the day before, is there going to be an availability, uh, the answer I got was that's not what he's here for. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, accessibility to the media is always there. This is a chance for him. He wants to talk to people, and so it wasn't even scheduled. For, but as you talked to some of your media colleagues, was there an expectation that they were going to have that opportunity? I don't think so. Not at least uh, the discussions that we had here beforehand. I don't think that was something that we anticipated. It was much more coming from the perspective that we're going to cover his exchange and his interactions with the people that have their questions, and and those obviously voicing some, you know, some of concern from the outside as well. Did you have a chance to talk to some of the folks when it was all over? No, not really, no. I think it probably would have been, uh, Ken would have been there still. I think it must have been kind of a rush of activity on the way out. I did hear that it was a little chaotic, actually, some from some people even uh, that work here at CHML that were in the crowd saying it was a bit chaotic on the way out. So I, I'm sure it was. <laughs> it was would have been hard to kind of get a sense of how the feeling was after the fact. Well, it's an unusual situation because we don't often get these things. I mean, you know, we, a lot. some people want to draw this equation that it was like a, a campaign rally, but I mean, it was a different situation because you 
you're going to get different folks in there with different agendas. And, and, and I'm just wondering about how the crowd reacted. It's almost like dealing with somebody after they go to see a concert. Well, what yeah. was it like? What was the set like list? You know, how did they perform? Did you like the costume? Whatever the case might be. Uh, and, and I know that one person actually characterized uh, this as, well, the prime minister's performance was great. And, mm-hmm. and I guess, I guess, in a roundabout way, it is kind of a performance. I mean, when you're out in the public like that, I mean, you're not being judged just on the content. Obviously, that's part of it, but it's presentation, like mm-hmm. any other before any other situation when you're dealing with public and dealing, uh, you know, with with questions and answers, etc. And uh, I, I'm just trying to get a sense of how people actually accepted this. I, I've watched the video of this, obviously, and I, there was some live streaming that was going on, so we had those opportunities to see this. But uh, it, it takes a certain individual to be able to handle that sort of thing and to be able Absolutely. to perform well. Yeah, I think you can see from social media and even just media in general, that became the story. Not so much the substance and what was being asked in some of the questions, but how he handled them. How he it's it's like we're still watching him, even though he's prime minister, of course, but how he handled those questions were they did it seem like these questions were vetted? Did it seem like his answers were scripted? And in some cases, he did have someone who was very vocal and almost, you know, probably seemed like it might turn into a bit of a security concern. And he didn't, he was reluctant to answer the question, but he did engage with that person. He he still answered the question in regards to Cotter, and he handled it very well to the point that people were were cheering and clapping. I mean, he got an ovation. I I know you do the same thing that I do. When When I'm trying to evaluate this and I'm trying to get people's response, uh, to a political performance such as, uh, as as the prime minister did yesterday, it's almost like when they they, they do the Olympic scoring because <laughs> there are some people That's that great. just love this guy and and no matter what he says, no matter what he does, they're going to love be great. him. Yeah. And there are other people at the other end of the spectrum that just hate him. They hate him because he's a liberal. They hate him because he's rich. They hate him because he's he's a Trudeau. Uh, and so no matter what he says or does, they're going to hate him. So I take the top and the bottom and throw them out and say, yep. forget about that. Okay, those are the two extremes. I don't care about those. Okay, because you know they they shouldn't even factor into this. I want to hear what the, the that kind of middle is saying that aren't quite sure. And and the response I heard from our media colleagues and from some of the folks I've talked to that attended this thing was they were they were pretty impressed with his performance. Even yes, he got on to talking points. Every politician does. Well, of course. He knows what he's gonna say about Cotter. He knows what he's gonna say about the Aga Khan. He knows what he's gonna say about NAFTA. Those are the talking points, and those are drilled into them, and, you know, whether he writes them or whatever, that's that's the Bible for any politician, whether you're talking to Justin Trudeau or Andrew Scheer, uh, Patrick Brown, Kathleen Wynne, they all have those. You know that's going to happen, but you want to know how they can incorporate that and how the, how candid they can be and how sincere they can be. And how they can deal with that raw emotion like we, we were seeing yesterday from protesters outside as well as inside, kind of dealing with some of this pent-up frustration over different issues. It's great to have talking points, but then to try and be able to take that down a notch and bring back that decorum to the room is really important in terms of performance. I, I'd like to see a lot more of this, uh, and, and not just from the Prime Minister, but from, from anybody that wants to see public office. Uh, I mean, that's why we do the town halls here with our, the mayors, Absolutely. Mayor Goldring and Mayor yep. Eisenberger, uh, because it gives people an opportunity to have a one-on-one, you know, take the script away, just okay, because you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we don't have the phone calls here when people call in, when we do the mayor's town halls or when we have the premier or anyone else in here. I mean, when, when we say vetting calls, and Jacob does a great job of that, our technical producer, all he's really doing is saying, oh, this is Sarah. She wants to talk, you know, and he wants to make sure it's going to be on topic. You know, you don't want to talk about the weather. You want to talk to, to the mayor. That's the only vetting we do. And uh, and, and it, there's a raw rawness to this and, and a candid aspect to this that I think is so very important. And that's what town halls give you. Absolutely. It, it really is. We, we talked about, you know, this being... Uh, in advance of the federal election. But it is a a tool to strengthen democracy. I really do feel that this is something you need to have. You need to have that transparency, that honesty and openness to be able to engage with people on this level. And and that's what we're seeing here. And of course, we do it here on CHML as well. And it gives you a true sense of what's happening in your country, in your city, in your town, whatever it may be. The worst thing that any elected official can do, whether it's a prime minister, a mayor, a city councillor for that matter, is to sit in their office and just listen to their staff uh, and say, oh, no, don't worry about this. You know what? They love you. They love you. And, oh, by the way, here are the hot-button issues. Here's what people are talking about. You should get out there and find out what they're talking about. And and anytime any leader does that, and like he did yesterday and like he's doing through the next couple of sessions on this, uh, that can only be a good thing, and I'm hoping that, that other leaders actually take up the uh, the standard here and try to do that too. 
Uh, I know you got to run. I know you're covering the uh, the, the, uh, the Moose Town thing and lots yeah. of other stuff going on today. Sarah, thanks so much for coming Thank in today. Thank you, Bill. Sarah Kane, CHML reporter who attended the, uh, the Trudeau Ra uh, session, of course, the town hall meeting at McMaster yesterday. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, yesterday on the program, Ward 7 Councillor Donna Skelly joined us, uh, and she was uh, commenting about a, a staff report, an update that uh, City Council got uh, about LRT costing and uh, expenditures so far. And uh, the headline, obviously, was uh, the LRT uh, expenditures are on the rise. Well, to be fair, I think that was kind of expected, right? I mean, as the project moves along, of course they're going to be spending money on these things. Uh, anyway, we wanted to get an update on where the project actually is and, and, and going forward exactly what the timeline is going to be because uh, that has been affected by some of the uh, council, I was going to say action, probably more importantly inaction on some of these things, which has uh, pushed some of those uh, those benchmarks, I think, back. Chris Jacobson is the acting LRT project director for the city of Hamilton. Joins us on the Bill Keller Show to give us that info. Chris, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, welcome to the file, first of all. I, I know that you're not new to this, but uh, obviously, uh, as you uh, move forward on this, uh, talk to us about about how this file has progressed and where you guys are on this. I mean, we get the political end of this oftentimes in the media, but uh, but you are the guys that are doing the grunt work on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the project as we see it right now is still on track. Obviously, there's been a, a little delay. Uh, we would have liked to have had the uh, the RFP out in, in 2018. You know, we're a couple of months behind uh, for various reasons. However, you know, our focus over the next couple of months, probably uh, towards the end of March anyway, will be on uh, getting to the RFP stage, getting to the in-market stage so that uh, you know, the, the proponents can start to, to bid on this process. And, and you mentioned you're, you're off track a little bit, although it's, it's not any dire circumstance at this stage. Uh, but are you concerned about the timelines? I mean, you know, I, I remember talking with Paul Johnson about this last year uh, and, and say, is there a tipping point where you're going to say, whoa, we're getting into a troubled area right now? You're nowhere near that, are you? No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, you know, with a, with a big project of this scale, of this magnitude, you know, you do your best to, to look forward and see what the timelines would be. You know, sometimes you meet them, sometimes you don't. But we're not, we're not off that much, maybe a, a month or two here. Uh, but we're generally still on track to where we said we were going to be. Now, when you saw these numbers and this, the production, the, the staff numbers that, that came out during this, uh, this discussion the other day, Chris, uh, the, the, we're talking about some big numbers right now. $78 million of the $1 billion has been spent. That's that's Metrolink's money, though, because I know some people called and I got tweets on this saying, "Oh my God, we've spent that much money." Technically, no. This this is this is the province slash Metrolinks that are incurring these expenses at this stage, correct? Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's the key message. And I, I think there's some confusion on how the the funding model works for this project. So, the the numbers that were quoted uh, the other day that were in the uh, the Hamilton Spectator, the 78 million that has been spent and committed uh, to this point, are 100% Metrolink's dollars. They are responsible for 100% of the capital costs, uh, and not just the capital costs associated with uh, implementing or building the LRT, but you know all of the studies and all of the work that leads up to building the LRT. So that the $78 million that w- was quoted was, in fact, uh, Metrolink's dollars, part of the project costs. What, what are they doing? Give us a, a, some insight, if you could, with, and, and, you know, without getting too technical, I guess, but sure. we don't want to get inside baseball too deeply here, Chris. But, but when, you know, we hear phrases like uh, consulting contracts and, 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 and staffing and things of this nature, exactly what does that entail? Again, you know, this is a monster project for for the city of Hamilton, possibly the the biggest, and I believe it's the biggest infrastructure uh, project we've ever undertaken. So, and if you look at the corridor, the the King Street corridor, uh, essentially from uh, you know Maine or uh, Eastgate all the way down to uh, McMaster, it, it it's a tight corridor. It requires a significant amount of planning, of engineering. Uh, the consulting that goes into just trying to, to, to figure out how to make this all work is, is, is substantial. So, you know, the type of work that we're doing right now is really focused on the, on the planning and engineering side of things. Uh, we are going to be moving uh, into the procurement side of the project, hopefully by the end of March, uh, and then we'll be, uh, you know, uh, going through that process. 
uh, for, for the remainder of the year. But, you know, the big work we're doing right now is really so, uh, focused on, you know, engineering, planning, even some property acquisition, doing some exploratory work within the corridor as well to make sure that uh, we've done our due diligence. Now, I know that you, you can't get into specific details about, for instance, certain properties, et cetera, but, but you're beyond the speculation and, and the, uh, and the uh, well, what-if situation here when it comes to land acquisitions. You pretty much know exactly where you want to make land acquisitions at this stage, don't you, Chris? And in general, we have a pretty good idea of where property is required. Uh, that may be refined over time as the design continues to evolve. And even, you know, as we move forward and get into construction, we may find, well, you know, what we thought may not necessarily fit. So we may need, you know, a little piece here, a little piece there. Uh, but in general, we have a, a pretty good idea of what's required. And and by the other way, the other t- side of the coin is you may actually not need as much. I, I know when the uh, when the link was being built. Now that predated my time on city council, but I know council at that time made a lot of land acquisitions along that corridor in the South Mountain. And and by the time I got to council in the eighteen nineties, and the, and the link was open, they said, well, yeah, we bought that, and we don't we didn't need it as it turned out. Uh, so th- that may actually be the case too. But you're 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 nowhere near making those decisions yet, are you? No, uh, we're we're looking at the worst-case scenario right now. So we're trying to identify exactly what we think we need for this project in order to make it a success. If we find that as we go through the design process or even construction process, uh, you know what, we have a better solution uh, that may not require as much land, then for sure we may have some excess land in in the future. One of the council complaints or concerns, I guess, uh, to to try to be uh, fair about this, uh, because there are varying degrees of, of, of concern and anxiety of some of the council members about this project, Chris, uh, is is the costing of of the construction itself and and the infrastructure that has to be replaced, et cetera. And and they were concerned about the fact that they didn't seem to be getting a true picture or a, a solid answer from Metrolinks, not from your staff, but from Metrolinks, about exactly what this is going to cost and who's going to pay for what. Is, is there some clarity on that issue yet? So, in, in what respect? What what cost uh, exactly? Well, that's what councillors are asking about. You know, how, uh, what what about those costs? What about uh, the, the infrastructure replacement? What about enhancements that have to go on? I mean, you're going to dig a great big hole in the ground. Uh, you're going to be replacing a lot of the underground infrastructure. Uh, is is that going to be all covered? Uh, what about some of the ancillary costs? I mean, uh, you're going to have to replace sidewalks. What about the road on top of it once it's all done? Uh, mm-hmm. Do do we know who's going to do what right now? Because Metrolinx was was a little ambiguous about some of those answers over the last little while. Okay, that's fair. So, so there's a very simple answer to that. So anything that's associated with the capital reconstruction costs or the capital construction costs of the LRT is borne by Metrolink. So that includes the replacement of all of our underground services if they have to be relo- relocated or replaced, uh, the road surface, the sidewalks, anything that would be a municipal asset within the corridor that is being affected by the construction is a capital cost borne by Metrolinx. Now, if we're asking for upgrades above and beyond what would be a reasonable recla- replacement value, then there has to be some level of negotiation between between us and Metrolinx in order to, as to what those costs are. But we haven't we haven't identified any of those upgrades to this point. So, as far as we're concerned, from from this point moving forward in the design. Metrolinx is responsible for 100% of the capital replacement costs. And I know we're kind of getting into the hypothetical here, but what would one of those possible enhancements be? I mean, what what might a municipality look for and say, hey, since we've dug this hole in the ground and we're replacing this, maybe we want to do this. So give me an idea, a conceptual idea of what one of those might be. Sure. A lot of it is more related to servicing, so for future development. So you look at the size of your, your storm sewer systems, your sanitary sewer systems, even your water distribution systems, maybe even some communication systems. So do we want to, you know, have a communications run down, down the middle of the corridor? Yeah, you know, the mayor's uh, talked about that, hasn't he, in the last couple of months? But yeah, actually, just- since you're going to put the hole in the ground, maybe we should put that in there now. Yeah, and, that, and that's a good idea, right? So when you, when you have the hole open, so to speak, uh, that's the time uh, to make those types of investments. You know, what they will be uh, still hasn't been determined. Right now, when we look at upgrading or upsizing, we believe we have a solution that will benefit the community for the future. So we haven't really even identified uh, any upgrades. As you can appreciate, the corridor is tight, so we've had to come up with some unique solutions to some of the engineering challenges that we face uh, through the corridor. Uh, so we think that we have that, that covered. One of the other concerns, and we're still under the the realm here, I guess, of costing, is operational costs. Uh, Once this thing is done, about who's going to pay for what, 
And uh, there was some concern mentioned by a number of the councillors last year, Chris, about actually who's going to pay that. Uh, is, is, is the province slash Metrolinx going to be uh, in charge of operational costs? Uh, is the city going to have to pay a share of that? Uh, and there, there seemed to be a, some gray area right now. Now, do we definitively have any idea about that, or do you really have to wait until you get into the RFP situation to find out who's going to do what? So I, I think you nailed it right there. So uh, the RFP uh, process that we're about to go through is going to inform a lot of the decisions that we make around operating and maintenance. You know, we can we have some estimates in our heads. We have some ideas of what we think that will be or even what the funding agreement would be between us and Metrolinx for that. But until we get some more details through the RFP process and understand truly how uh, the projectos or the, the project companies that will be bidding on this on this uh, project will actually operate and maintain the system and have some of those details, it's difficult for us to, to even put an estimate as to what that would be. We have some broad ideas, but you know those will have to be refined over time as we get more and more information from the project coast. As uh, I'm not trying to bring up some of the ghosts of the past, but <laughs> uh, if you don't if you don't learn from history, you're going to repeat it. Uh, the stadium issue, and I know that just sent a shiver down your spine, Chris. But I want to ask you not specifically about that, but as we know, it didn't go as well as we had hoped it would. Uh, there were some delays. There were some concerns about who was building it, how they were overseeing it, etc. And, and there was a call by many of the people on city council to say, well, if we're going to have any of these projects in the future, we, we need to have some more oversight than we did on that. Uh, what Where is that right now? I mean, do, uh, is the city going to stand back and watch Metrolinx do this? Or you, do you guys actually have a voice at this table to say, well, wait a second, we'd like, Rick, like you to do it this way. We'd like to know who's going to be bidding on this and maybe even have some, some, some insight in, as to actually who's going to win some of those contracts. How are those negotiations going? So, so I'm glad you actually steered away from the stadium because <laughs> my knowledge of the stadium. Is forget I brought it. Forget I brought right? it up. Okay. okay? So, 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 so let's let's push that off to the side. Uh, in, in terms of where we are at and what our partnership is with Metrolinx on this, I'd say it's very tight. So we are definitely at the table. You know, we are uh, we have a joint project office. So so myself and, and Andrew Hope. I know uh, most people know who Andrew Hope is. He's the director on the uh, the Metrolink side of this project. Mm-hmm. We have a joint office. So we are working hand in hand, uh, day in day out on on this process. You know, so whether it's the planning, design, and uh, in, in, in future as we go through the procurement process and we go through implementation, we will be there. Uh, always at the table, always communicating back and forth. So uh, that's the way it's been set up. Uh, it's worked well to this point, and I have no doubt that it will continue to work well into the future. Chris, who's building these things? I mean, when you do get to the RFP stage, and I know we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here, uh, I, I, there are international companies. I mean, because these things are being built all over the world these days. I, I've told our listeners, of course, a couple of years ago when we were at Edinburgh, we saw their LRT system, which runs actually from the airport to right downtown. Uh, and, and, and it's it's a very interesting system. Uh, are you confident that there's going to be a lot of folks that are interested in getting onto this project once that, that RFP goes out, that request for proposal goes out? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we've seen it on other projects, uh, say uh, Mississauga, Toronto, uh, Waterloo, Ottawa. Uh, there is demand out there uh, for this type of work. And, and it's generally a consortium of different companies that, that come together to, to build and operate these types of systems, uh, very large engineering firms, you know, Canadian-based firms as well, uh, but they're also supplemented by, you know, expertise from, from around the globe. You know, we have, um, you know, we, we've seen uh, consortiums out, out of Asia, out of, out of Europe, uh, some, some stuff from, from South America. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's, the bids companies tend to be more global in nature. Uh, but they always have a, a Canadian flavor for sure. So there, there is a lot of demand and a lot of great expertise out there. Could you learn from some of these projects that have gone before you about uh, you know what to not to do, what to do, maybe things that could be done more efficiently? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're we're in constant contact with our friends over in Waterloo and Mississauga and Toronto, Ottawa. You know, picking their brain. You know, it, all all of these projects are different. They all have different challenges, different constraints, but there are you know some some commonalities amongst them. Um, you know, so we, we try to learn from each other, um, it, not just on this project, but all projects. You know, we always reach out to, to our partners in other communities to try to see how they're doing things, what are their best practices, you know, what things should we avoid. So, you know, we're, we're definitely in contact with them. 
I mean, I mean, we've done segments and, and meetings here on in the studio on our program with the regional chair, uh, you know, Sealing and others from from the KW area about their project. Uh, we were up in Ottawa, obviously in November uh, for for the football game, but obviously we stayed right downtown. Saw that project, the great big hole in the ground, not too far from the Chateau Laurier. But you're absolutely right. And as much as there's going to be some similarities with these projects, uh, sometimes it's apples and oranges. The Ottawa project obviously has a, a segment that actually goes underground. Uh, mm-hmm. We're not doing that here in this city, and so th- th- they all have their unique challenges. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, you can look at the, at the big picture items just in terms of you know how you structure your your bid documents, how you structure your agreements, uh, even you know the general layout of of how they operate. Uh, but every situation is unique, and, and I can tell you right now, you're not going to find a more unique situation in the corridor that, that, that we have. It's a challenge, and it's exciting. Uh, it, it, it takes a, a great level of thought uh, with some great minds on the engineering and planning side to, to make this work. Uh, but it's safe to say that you know, our, our project is is drastically different than some of the other projects that are, are going on right now in the province. Well, I don't know exactly about the KW situation. I mean, I've seen a little bit of that. I saw the Ottawa circumstance, but I mean, I guess one of the bigger challenges you've got with this one is, is crossing the 403 in the west end of the city here. Yes, exactly. So crossing the 403 is a challenge. We have another structure uh, down uh, at the CP uh, crossing between Gage and the Delta uh, that's going to require you know some type of grade separation. So yeah, structures are part of this. Crossing over the 403, as much as it's as much as it's a big ticket item because we have to build a bridge to cross over the 403. From an engineering perspective, that's actually pretty simple. You know, it's it's a big ticket item, but it's it's pretty simple. There's some other some challenges within the corridor that uh, uh, require some unique thinking for sure. Well, and and to get out of the realm of engineering for a second and into the into the realm of of, of impact on businesses, etc. I mean, that's part of the dialogue that you have to have. Uh, at the same time, you can't just talk about the technicalities of this and say, yes, we can do this, here's how, here are the blueprints. Uh, you've got to talk to those people along there and say, here's how this is going to impact you, and here's how we can do stuff to mitigate the impacts. Uh, boy, you've got a lot on your plate here. There's a lot of different, uh, a lot of different things to bring together here to make this thing work. Absolutely. There's a, there's a lot of moving parts on, uh, on this project. And you, know, you bring up a key point here, which is the human element. Uh, and there is, beyond the technical side of this, you know, beyond even the political side of this, you know, there is a human element to, to this project. Uh, this project does affect people's lives. Uh, you know, should you invest in your business? Should you invest in your home? You know, should you sell? You know, those are decisions that, that people need to make. Uh, and this project will impact people uh, through this corridor. Uh, but we have programs in place. You know, we have a great community connector por- program where we go out twice a year. Uh, meet with all of the properties uh, along this corridor. You know, ask them questions, give them updates, make sure that they're informed. Um, so, and that that's been a, a huge benefit to us, being able to go out to the community, to knock on those doors, to talk to those people, to understand their fears, uh, and to give them the information that they need so that they can make informed decisions about what the future holds for them. So, that's a very valuable program to us. Uh, I think we're one of the first projects to actually do that, and I believe there's some other projects now that are modeling what we've done here in Hamilton. Uh, so, we're very proud of that. Chris, I know it, it's it's not in your wheelhouse to deal with the politics or the policy of this. It's your job to just get this done. But you you know the the, the conversations that are going on around you right now. But upcoming elections, and the, obviously there's going to be a new council in December of this year. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen in the provincial government. Uh, and, and, of course, the gist of, of some of that discussion is, well, are we at the point of no return where we can't just say, stop, we're not going to do this anymore. We've spent this much money. We have to move forward. Uh, does that sort of talk have an impact on on, on your staff as, and you as you go forward on this? I mean, just put your head down and keep going, or did, does does that distract you? Because obviously, uh, it could change what you guys are going to do almost from day to day. Yeah, yeah there's always that, again that human element uh, associated with any uncertainty or any noise uh, that we call it that that exists that surrounds this project. You know, we we have a clear direction from council. Uh, council made a decision back in December to move forward. With the DBFOM model uh, for procurement, uh, that's a, a direction to us to continue on with our project. So that's what we do. You know, we have clear direction from council. You know, we somewhat put our heads down and get the job done. That's that's what we're paid to do. That's what we've been hired to do. Uh, so yeah, you're you're always going to get a certain level of noise that that surrounds your project, especially something that's as big uh, as this project. Uh, but it's our job just to, to make sure that we, we focus on the deadlines, uh, our milestones, and, and just get it done. 
Well, I got a feeling this topic is going to come up again in the next uh, six or eight months uh, on an ongoing <laughs> basis. So I'm sure we'll talk again, Chris. Thanks so much for this today. Not a problem. Anytime. Great talking with you. Chris Jacobson, acting LRT project director for the city of Hamilton. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.